Curry stumbles with his dribble on right now, spins, gets to the rim. He erased two defenders with one spin move. This is the Golden State Warriors podcast. And now your host, the voice of the Warriors, at Warriors Vox, Tim Roy. Welcome back to the Warriors podcast. I'm Tim Roy. Glad to have you with us as the Warriors head toward the All-Star break. One of the latest breaks that I've ever seen when the Warriors come out of the All-Star break. It's 20-plus games, and that's going to be it. And you're going to be going, here we go, playoff time. And so that part of the equation is coming quickly. Warriors have hit a little bit of a rough patch. A couple of games against big teams that punished them inside, hurt them on the boards. And maybe the first time that we've seen the loss of Draymond Green really hurt Golden State. They did a great job. A nine-game winning streak without Draymond in the lineup and without Andre for the most of that. That was one of the more impressive stretches of really good basketball that we've seen in in recent years, and so they should be applauded for that. But I think in the last couple of games, the loss of Draymond really stood out. But it's also deadline week. How did I forget? It's deadline week. It's always exciting to spend your Tuesday or Thursday morning, wherever the deadline falls, to stare at your computer and stare at a couple of streams, whether it be Woj or Shams, and and wait for the announcement of trades that you couldn't even conceive a moment before. And to help us get through all that, we're going to talk to Howard Beck in just a moment. But first, a reminder that you can always hear the post-game shows from Warriors Radio right here where you get the Warriors podcast. So make sure you tune into that to hear what I have to say along with Tom Tolbert and Jim Barnett. Always fun, always entertaining. So make sure you check that out. So without further ado, I, I welcome in the senior writer at Sports Illustrated, co-host of the Crossover Podcast. That is the legendary Howard Beck. And uh, Howard, how are you? And did you survive a deadline day? <laughs> I survived. It was uh, thrilling, exhausting, intriguing, fascinating. Uh, gave us all plenty to talk about. Uh, I don't know what we're going to do for the rest of the NBA season. All the intrigue is, uh, has passed. Yeah, I, I don't know if the, uh, the the buyout market will be that that huge this year, though it could have a couple of interesting pieces. We'll have to wait and see on that. But, uh, but a lot to talk about and a lot to unpack. And, you know, maybe because – you know, I don't uh, write about uh, all the big deals and everything else. Uh, my job's different. Uh, I wasn't as, you know, fired up about the, the big trade of the day between Brooklyn and Philadelphia, you know, with Ben Simmons going to Brooklyn and James Harden going to, to Philly, as most people were. What was your take on that deal and and, and unpack it, if you will, for us? Um, it, it sounds hokey, but I really think this is the rare case, especially among blockbusters trades where basically everybody won um ben simmons won because he got out of a situation that he clearly for the last eight months has been desperately trying to get out of james harden won because things had gone sour in brooklyn and he clearly felt he needed to move on i think the nets are better today frankly with ben simmons once he gets on board than they were with james harden i think he's a better fit we can get into that and i think they also picked up a couple other pieces that helped the nets in places that they really needed it and i think the sixers are clearly better off having james harden than having a ben simmons who wasn't playing any games at all of course and besides that the sixers had made it very clear daryl Morey had made it very clear i'm not trading ben simmons until i get the uh requisite talent in return that i think is worthy of of this deal of and of this player and he got it. He, you know, if there was, if there was a short list that Daryl Morey wanted, it was probably James Harden, Damian Lillard, Bradley Beal. Two of those guys are actually hurting out for the season, and he got the third one. So I think 
everybody won all the way around here. But as we know, you know, it, it depends on how things actually play out on the court before you can truly declare a winner long term. Yeah, you know, I was wondering what's what start with Ben Simmons. You know, he wanted out. He he basically you know stayed home, and uh, that that you know in and of itself it raises some flags for me. But but um, you know, you said he's a better fit. Why do you think he's a better fit with with Brooklyn? So let's make an assumption here for a minute, and it's a it's a it's a tough assumption. But on the assumption that Kyrie Irving plays 100% of games sometime again. Um, and that'll happen someday, um, maybe sooner than later. Uh, you know, uh, laws are changing every day or, and policies are changing every day with regard to COVID and the pandemic. Um, so let's assume Kyrie Irving is a full-time player again. Kevin Durant gets healthy. He's a full-time player. The, the, the Nets have more than enough offensive firepower with those two. You want some shooting around them. You need some de- defense around them. But they've got more than enough firepower. James Harden was was basically a surplus. Like, it's a nice luxury to have. But three ball-dominant, high-scoring stars, I wasn't sure if was the, the best alignment. Now, granted, the 16 games they actually played together in the last 13 months, the numbers were spectacular. And so it, it's hard to argue with that. But I think Ben Simmons provides better balance. Ben Simmons is one of the best defenders in the league, finished you know, second in defensive player of the year last season, has made uh, all defensive teams twice. He can guard one through five. He can switch on to anybody at any time. The Nets didn't have anybody like that. And in fact, defensively, they were pretty bereft. And we know that James Harden is generally a net negative at that end, and, and so is Kyrie. So Ben Simmons as being you know, a, a great defender and also, of course, a really gifted passer, he's got two absolutely elite all-time scoring talents to set up in Kyrie and Kevin Durant. And so I think he's, he's in fact a better fit. And in this, you know, along with uh, Ben Simmons, of course, they're getting Seth Curry. So now they've got one of the best shooters in the league and they badly needed that because they've, you know, Joe Harris hasn't been able to play all season and may not return this season. They got Andre Drummond and they were certainly really missing some some bigs uh, to, to, you know, take up space in the paint and, and, and do some of the dirty work and rebounding. So I, I just think all the way around, the Nets are a, a, a more complete team today. And I think that Ben Simmons, if, you know, if, if everything goes right, right, like we don't know what his state is after all this time off. So there's some caveats, but I think in the abstract, is simply a basketball matter, this is a really great fit. So let's go to the other side, though, and, and which Harden will Philly get? The Harden that we saw a little bit with Brooklyn where he's moving the ball and he's, he's playing really good basketball on the offensive end. We know he's not you know, a defender, and, and he hasn't had a lot of big moments uh, playoff-wise in clutch games. Or, or we're going to get the Daryl Morey-Houston Harden that you know dribble-dribble up top and iso with people you know waiting to see if they get a chance for a three-point shot. Which Harden do you think we'll get? Throughout Harden's time in Houston, as great as he was and as much success as they had overall, I was always a Harden skeptic. I did not, I, I did, did not enjoy his brand of basketball or certainly that extreme brand of ball dominance. And so I was never a big fan. Um, you know, you recognize the talent and the ability to to win a lot of games, but I just I wasn't really a fan of of just the, the the aesthetics of it. And I wasn't sure it's great for team camaraderie if one guy's dominating the ball that much. So I was skeptical when the Nets got Harden. And I wrote about that at the time. To his credit, I think 
he proved to people like me that he is able to adapt. I know they didn't play a ton together, but when Harden was actually on the court with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, James Harden reeled way back. His shots per game, his usage rate, all that came way down, and he was fine with it. He was He's a phenomenal facilitator. If he wants to play as more of a full-time, not traditional point guard, he'll never be completely a traditional point guard. He's not, you know, Jason Kidd or Andre Miller or something or John Stockton, but, like, he – I think did his absolute best to be more facilitator than scorer when he had Kyrie and Kevin Durant on the court with him. Things went bad here because Kyrie Irving couldn't play, you know, first initially he wasn't playing at all because the Nets had said, we don't want you as a halftime player. Then they eventually brought him back. And that was maybe even worse because then you just have this lurching from one lineup on the road to a different one at home. And and Harden was fed up. Now I'm not going to absolve Harden of any blame here because, you know, it's how you handle these things, and certainly there were concerns once again about his conditioning at the start of this season. But I don't blame James Harden for wanting out, given how much of a circus this has become and how much strain Kyrie Irving had put this franchise under, and 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 James Harden because you know listen, injuries are part of the game, and Kevin Durant being out for six weeks is going to be tough regardless. But the point of having three superstars, three top 10 players, top 15, top 20, whatever they are, is so that you've got insurance built in. No one ever has to carry too much of the burden. Harden ended up with the entire burden because Kyrie couldn't play all these home games and Kevin Durant is out and the drop-off in talent from their big three to everybody else it was was steep. And, you know, if Harden's forcing his way out of Houston was – you know, a, a motivated by not wanting to have to carry so much so often anymore. Well, then what's he doing on a Nets team where he's still having to carry that much because Kyrie Irving won't get a shot? Right. Yeah, I could see that. I could see where that would be very frustrating. Like, okay, we want to win a title, but you might not be able to play to help us win a title. And so that that to me would that that would kind of drive me crazy as well. Hey, I, I we've we've spent a lot of time on that one. Let's let's move on and closer to where I am. I kind of like what the Kings did over the last week or so. I kind of like the the moves they made. You know, everybody kind of initially the reaction of trading Tyrese Halliburton, you know, they kind of got a, a bad rap. But, but you know, Sabonis is a heck of a player, and he's still young, you know, and he's still on a decent contract. I kind of like that move. I got mixed feelings, Tim. I really do. Um, I, 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 I salute the Kings for – decided for picking a direction basically for deciding after a couple of years of just stasis that we need to do something dramatic we've got to change the trajectory we're going to roll the dice a little bit to do it they did pick up a two-time all-star in Demonte Sabonis who is very talented um and as a as a is a big who can score and rebound and also a very good passer that they have him as a complimentary star to De'Aaron Fox who they hope becomes an all-star and, and who has shown signs of that it makes some sense, but it's man, it's I was stunned when I saw that trade come across and like, oh my gosh, they're trading Tyrese Halliburton. Like, this is a new front office. They've been on on the job for 16 months. They've had two drafts. They picked Tyrese Halliburton, who was the steal of that draft, and then they got Davion Mitchell, who they're really high on and who has shown a lot of promise. And so I thought, you know, those are your guys that that you're building around or, or the guys that you picked, not necessarily the ones that you inherited. And I thought you know, a roster demolition of some sort or blow up was, was overdue. And when it finally came, when they finally made their big move that they're trading 
<laughs> one of the best young players that the franchise has had, you know, in, in a long time. Oh, man, I, I just I don't know. I mean, and Halliburton, he's got size. He can defend multiple positions. He's a great passer. He's a you know a forty percent three point shooter or, or, or very close. Um, and he's young and he's on a you know a rookie deal that's very cheap relative to NBA salaries. So uh, it's a tough one. I I mean it it, it it pushed them forward. They're they're probably a better team today than they were a few days ago. But at what cost, you know, and I guess that all just depends on what you think Halliburton's ceiling is and how confident you are that De'Aaron Fox does become the all-star that they had projected him to be. Yeah, that's the thing. Fox is the key because I think they wanted to move that contract. They couldn't. uh, They they did get out from under the ghost of Marvin Bagley, which is – um, yes. Yeah, and, and that, you know, hey, I like DiVincenzo. I like him. He's, he's a good, you know, tough little player. Um, what other deals? Yes. What other deals kind of caught your eye? Um, I'm trying to. Th- it was, there was so much that happened. Um, well, well, let's. Well, let me make it easier for you then. Let's, let's go. Uh, let's go with the the deal of Chris Apps Porzingis, who just yeah. never seemed to fit alongside Luca. Yeah, no, that's a good one to flag. Um, you know, obviously, it's a big disappointment for Dallas. I mean, that trade, trading Porzingis for Spencer Dinwiddie, who the Wizards had just signed to a big contract before the season, and Davis Bertans, who, you know, a couple off seasons ago was their big signing. Like, this was just a swapping of mistakes or, or of bad investments, basically. And, you know, I don't know that the Mavericks are any better off with Spencer Dinwiddie. Like, I, I, they've clearly, they've had a goal in the last couple of years. We need somebody else who can handle the ball, pass at a high level, score at a decent level, and take some of the burden off of Luca. We're running him into the ground. We got to have some balance here. And so Spencer Dinwiddie, I saw him here in Brooklyn as he kind of, you know, became, you know, a, a really good player. He broke through after being waived by a couple of teams and the Nets built him up. Um, and then he cashed in with that, that big contract in Washington. I think Spencer Dinwiddie can be really good for them. So I don't mind that necessarily. And Davis Bertans, you know, who knows what's happened to him, you know, from San Antonio to Washington. Maybe he finds his, his, his stroke again. I just, the Porzingis thing was designed, that acquisition was designed to give Luca his running mate, to have his co-star there. And Porzingis, combination of things, mostly that he hasn't been able to stay healthy for, for long stretches and doesn't have quite the same spring that he had, you know, in his earlier years in New York. Um, and they maxed him out. And, and, and then they decided, you know what, that that's not the right max contract to have. He's not the right running mate. The problem is, like, they have no front court. <laughs> They've got a bunch of, like, Dinwiddie's good. You know, uh, Jalen Brunson, who they need to resign this summer, is good. Tim Hardaway Jr., before he went out with an injury, you know, solid. Um, you know, they've got wings. They've got guards. But they just don't have a front court. And so I just, I don't know what's next for Dallas here. So, um, and Porzingis, look, maybe he and Bradley Beal really click and maybe things go well there, but you know, it's, it still comes back to the same thing. Porzingis has to stay healthy and, and, you know, shoot consistently, which has been a little bit more of a struggle this year, but he's had, he did have some good moments in Dallas and he did have some good, um, like just as a broadly statistically, he was actually pretty strong scoring, rebounding, shot blocking. Uh, he just couldn't stay on the court enough and, and he's been a defensive liability. What what did you make of the move with uh, well first of all Boston gets Derek White I think that I like Derek White a lot and then then trading Schroeder to Houston uh, Houston waived Ennis Freedom right away so he's a he's a candidate for somebody to sign in a buyout market but 
what did you make of that deal? Is Schroeder there to kind of give a, a, a veteran with their young guards around him, or do they have something else up their sleeve? Um, like I was, you're absolutely expected that when they got in his freedom that they were going to waive him immediately. Like, I didn't, you know, his, his, his production and his, his, you know, ability to help a team have ever really eroded quite a bit. So I didn't see that as making much sense anyway. Um, and I thought Schroeder was going to get waived or bought out right along with him. And I'm, I'm still kind of expecting that if you, I don't, I don't know what the purpose of having Schroeder there is. Like they've got John Wall who they've mothballed on a massive contract and don't want him to play because they're all about Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. Well, then why would you bring in Dennis Schroeder and actually want him to play if, if, you know, you've been focusing on your young guards to the, and then at the expense of, of John Wall basically losing an entire year of his career? It's very strange. So logically, if, and if there's going to be any consistency, I would still expect a Dennis Schroeder buyout, but I've heard nothing along those lines. All right, finally, we have to we have to get one more deal for Ish Smith. He's in Chucky Brown territory. We need to get one more <laughs> deal for Ish. Come on, we gotta get gotta get bang the drums. Let's go. <laughs> uh, I love I love Ish. Uh, I, I I'm not sure if I feel bad for him being traded again or if I'm like kind of rooting for just like I love the fact that like this is there's an honor in this, right? Yeah. If you you know when you're a player with you know a lower ceiling, but you play your butt off. You you make the right decisions on the floor. You're good good guy. Teammates love you, and you it's, you get traded a lot and, and and moved around a lot. Not because you're not good, but because you're just good enough to stick around and make yourself valuable, despite the fact that you don't have the highest ceiling or the highest level of athleticism. And so, like I, I admire the heck out of out of Ish Smith. And so, this is this will be his second tour with Washington. Um, I, I, I'm I'm sure. You know, by this time next year, he'll have been at least with two other teams because that's just what he does. You know, and it's it, it's so funny because I, you know, sometimes I when I talk to young players, I tell them, look, you know, uh, working hard and showing up on time—that's a that's a good skill to have. You know, you do that, and, and teams know that they can trust you. You can play in the league for a long time if you play hard. You know, if you're good enough. And uh, for guys like Ish Smith and 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 other players we've seen, you know, years gone by, you know, they play you know, 10 years longer than most people thought they would coming out of college. And a lot of guys were more talented or home. I mean, it's, 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 it's really, a, it's a real testament to his character and to his mindset that he's, he's played this long. I, I love, I love watching guys like that. That's great. Good stuff. No, no question. Hey, what's uh, what, what else is up for Howard Beck? What, uh, what do you have any good uh, stories that you're working on right now that we should keep an eye out for or, or uh, on the, the crossover podcast? Oh, I've always got something up my sleeve, Tim. Um, uh, we do. You're like we, Bo, we, you're like Bowinkle. Yeah, there you go. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Uh, uh, hopefully, your listeners can uh, check out the crossover podcast as well as the Open Floor podcast, our other NBA pod. We did uh, two hours split between the two podcasts to cover all of the trade stuff yesterday. So those are up, uh, available wherever you get your podcasts. I've got a column up right now on SI.com. About Ben Simmons and, you know, what his kind of twisted path from Philly to Brooklyn means for the Nets. And, uh, you know, a lot of the questions that we had about Ben Simmons with the Sixers and as Embiid's 
co-star, those are now the Nets' concerns to, to deal with. And what does it mean that he's, he's starting anew there? So uh, that is up on SI.com right now. Outstanding. Howard, I appreciate your time today. And, and as always, it's always fun to talk basketball with you and, and uh, to chat with you and see what's going on. And I look forward to running into you sometime. Enjoy the, your your stint at the All-Star Weekend in Cleveland. And hopefully we'll run into you somewhere down the road, hopefully in the postseason. Appreciate it, Tim. Look forward to seeing you. Always great to talk with Howard Beck. Always learn something more about the National Basketball Association. Check him out. Sports Illustrated, the crossover pod, and you will be entertained and informed just like yours truly. Hey, as we wrap up this week's edition of the podcast, you know, the New York Knicks were in town recently, and at the pregame press conference, I spoke with Tom Thibodeau. I got to know Coach Tibbs a little bit when he was hanging out with the Warriors in training camp a few years back. And I asked him a question, what he gleaned from that experience. You know, coaches go around and they hang out with other coaches when they're not working. So I asked uh, Coach Tibbs what he learned about the Warriors in, in sitting down with them in training camp and watching them go to work. Well, I think just the different things that they've gone through, you know, into uh, where they were initially, and then they worked their way to becoming a championship team. Then they took on the injuries. And the thing that like really impressed me during that time was they had a lot of injuries, but their spirit remained the same. So they handled that adversity really well. And I think they benefited uh, a player like Wiggs came in and they did a great job with them. And so uh, the byproduct of that was turning that situation into a positive. And then now as they get their players back, a lot of those players that were getting time have really grown. And so then you get, you know, Steph is Steph. And, you know, Clay, obviously, it's great for the game to have him back. But, you know, Draymond is probably the most unique player in the league. And just watching all their interactions with each other and then knowing, you know, ownership from my time in Boston and, you know, Bob Myers and Mike Dunleavy and, in Steve Kerr and of course, you know, Ron Adams and the, and the rest of their staff, uh, there's great order and great togetherness and they've, they've done great things. It's amazing. And as you know, it's 75 years, 75 stars this year on Warriors radio, as we celebrate 75 years of the Golden State Warriors and the NBA. And on these podcasts, I've been using one of our features that we air during our pregame show this week, the one, the only, the Big Dipper, Will Chamberlain. It's time for 75 years, 75 stars, as we celebrate 75 years of Warriors basketball in the NBA. The Big Dipper. Will Chamberlain was selected by the Philadelphia Warriors in the first round, the third pick overall of the 1959 NBA draft. He exploded into the NBA and changed the league forever. Gary Pomerantz is an author and wrote the book, Wilt, 1962. When you think back to Wilt Chamberlain, when he enters the NBA uh, in 1959, it's like the Big Bang. I mean, he had that kind of impact in the league because he was, he was unprecedented. You know, make no mistake, when you, when you, when you consider the context for Wilt's 100-point uh, night in Hershey in 1962, in his third year, you know, you have to consider the times. When he entered the league in 1959, he entered a white man's enclave. 
you know, there was unquestionably a quota in the National Basketball Association at that time that limited opportunity for African Americans, initially to one or two black players per team, and then by 1962 to three or four. The league was one-third African American, two-thirds white at that time. And so what Wilt is doing throughout that season in 1962 when he averages 50 points per game and throws down that 100-point thunderbolt in Hershey is to symbolically blow that quota to bits. That's right. His first three years in Philadelphia, he averaged 37 points and 27 rebounds, followed up by 38 and 27. And then that year, 62, 50 points a night, 25 boards, and over 48 minutes a game. These are numbers that more than likely we'll never see again. And about that 100-point game at Hershey, Pennsylvania? Rogers throws long to Chamberlain. He's got it. He's trying to get up. He shoots. No good. The rebound, Luckenbill. Back to Chamberlain. He shoots up. No good. In and out. The rebound, Luckenbill. Back to Ruckwick. Into Chamberlain. As the time goes by, I feel more and more a part of the 100-point game. When it first happened, you must understand, I'm from the streets, and, and when you throw up 63 shots in the game, you're considered to be a gunner. You understand? And uh, I always looked at that as uh, me having my best day gunning, you know, not, not really performing. You understand? But it has become a handle, and I begin to realize just how and what I did. But what you must understand, that 100-point game wasn't a single man's achievement, as I've been trying to tell people for years. It was a team effort, and the guys on my team went above and beyond the call of duty to make it happen for me. That game would be one of 105 that Wilt would have 50 points or more in a Warriors jersey. And when the Warriors moved to San Francisco, the pro basketball game was brand new to the Bay Area. We came from a basketball town. Philadelphia sure. was one sure. of the premier basketball cities in all the world. And uh, when we left there, we came to a city that didn't know very much about basketball except the Dons, you know, and mm-hmm. Bill, Bill Russell. And pro, pro basketball was something like a lock to them. And it wasn't until Alex took over that they started to think of uh, the Warriors as being a serious professional basketball entity. Alex was Coach Alex Adam, who helped the Warriors to the 1964 NBA Finals, where they would lose to Boston. But in the middle of the 1964-65 season, owner Frank Lemuley had a tough decision to make. That uh, I'm better off with Nate as a young center than Wilt with his huge salary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he and I were good friends, you know. We used to go out to dinner all the time. He liked what things were mad at me about. He says, I've had all kinds of owners. You're the only owner I really enjoyed spending time with that you trade me. <laughs> the trade sent Will back to Philadelphia, and in 1966-67, Alex Hannum, who had coached the Warriors to the NBA Finals in 1964, was hired by Philadelphia. Warriors legend Tom Macheri says that transformed Wilt's game. A sensational basketball player who, who in a lot of ways didn't come into his own as a all-around player uh, until his last, you know, years. I mean, when he, when he was with the Warriors, he was not a complete player. He became, sort of, became in, came into his own when he started to play with the 76ers and that first year with Alex. And 
And it was Alex who kind of got him turned around, thinking more defense, thinking more pass. That Philadelphia team would interrupt Boston's legendary championship streak by defeating them in the Eastern Conference Finals. Now the Celtics on the brink of defeat for the first time since 1956. Gamely trying, but they did not have it here in the second half. Rebound by Chamberlain, underneath it goes to Greer. Greer lays it in. Jackson with the ball back out deep and quickly goes over to Walker. Underneath the Jackson, he shoots his block by Russell. The rebound is up and no good. The rebound by Russell. On the right, the victory. That's it. The ball game goes. And the crowd bursts out onto the court. The Philadelphia squad of 1966-67 is still considered one of the best of all time. The last five seasons of Wilt Chamberlain's career were in Los Angeles, helping the Lakers to their first West Coast title. According to Pat Riley, a teammate on that squad, Wilt was a difference maker. The year we won the championship, I don't think there's any doubt that the difference was Wilt. Uh, we had a pretty fragile team. I think Wilt you know, got us over the top from that standpoint, and he was, he was really the difference. He was an incredible, incredible player. If you're skeptical of the numbers and skeptical of when he played, listen to the testimony from some of the greatest who have ever played this game. Former Warriors executive, Hall of Famer, and Laker guard, Jerry West. I say he was uniquely different uh, than most players that I've ever been around, uniquely different. Um, very prideful. Um, if, some, if someone would write something derogatory about him, and writers will, you know, depending upon, you know, they're going to blame somebody. Um, again, he was, he'd, he'd always say to me, why do I get criticized? I said, you're an easy target, which he was. And, um, and we, used to, we used to talk about stuff like that, but he was very sensitive, but someone that, uh, at the end of the day, uh, he, he helped me as a player. Um, to win it, something I didn't think I was going to win, and something I don't think any of our players thought we were going to be able to do. Um, and he made me a better player. And I'll be forever thankful that I had a chance to play with him, but more importantly, know him. He was very complex. On the Warriors' all-time list, Chamberlain ranks first in points per game, 41.5 a night. First in rebounds, over 25 a night, and minutes played, 47.2 a game. He is now second in points scored, 17,783, but he played only five and a half years with the Warriors and held that record until one Stephen Curry came along. 17,782 for Curry. Dribble drive. Curry goes in, drives the layup. It's up and good. And there he is, Stephen Curry, now the all-time leading scorer in Warriors franchise history. He shines brighter than the Big Dipper as he passes Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt will also hold the Warriors franchise single game record for most points in a game with 100, most field goals attempted 63, and most rebounds 55, all NBA records. And there is one night that's not in the record book. As Philadelphia statistician extraordinaire Harvey Pollock explains, Wilt had a 20-plus triple-double. I forget the exact numbers, but he had over 20 points, he had over 20 rebounds, and oh, over 20 assists in the same game. Can you imagine anybody doing that today? No, I can't imagine anyone ever doing that again, ever. The Warriors retired Chamberlain's jersey on December 29, 1999.
He was a two-time champion, a four-time MVP, a 13-time All-Star. He led the league in scoring seven times and in rebounding 11 times. He was the 1972 NBA Finals MVP, the Rookie of the Year in 1960, and he was inducted into Springfield in 1979. And he earned the respect and praise of the greatest winner in American sport, a Bay Area treasure, Bill Russell. My friend Wilt, Norman Chamberlain, was far and away the best player I've ever played against for a number of reasons. First of all, physically he was still the most imposing physical player that's ever played in this league, period. There's no one that's come close to him in terms of just physical prowess. On top of that, he's a great athlete. And the last thing that created a problem was he was smart. 75 years, 75 stars. Wilt. been 75 years 75 stars even today with Wilt's career ending in the mid-70s the numbers are staggering yes there were more shots back then yes the pace was quicker back then but still the numbers were staggering and especially when you consider his numbers in Philadelphia because he was playing against Bill Russell 18 times a season Think about that when you're going up against maybe the best defensive player in the history of the league, and you can still average 35 and 50 points a game for an entire season. That is your Warriors podcast. I'm Tim Roy. Thanks to James Kincaid. Thanks to R.C. Davis, the grand pooba of all things Warriors audio. And we will see you next week right here on the Warriors podcast.